I'm Evan Mark Katz, dating coach for smart, strong, successful women and your personal trainer for love. Welcome to the Love You podcast, where you'll learn how to operate from a place of confidence and make better choices with men. When we're done, I'll let you know how you could apply to Love You to create a passionate relationship that makes you feel safe, heard, and understood. Thanks for joining me here on the Love You podcast. I am thrilled to do another episode for you of some ideas that I've been banding about in my Love You Live coaching program. I test most of my ideas out there before I bring it here. So uh, hopefully it's not too half-baked. Got a good story to tell later today. Before we get into that story, I just want to remind you, if you enjoy the Love You podcast, please go leave us a positive review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, your words matter. Uh, I am listening. I am grateful. Next, uh, if you're serious about finding love, please make sure you're on my mailing list. Uh, go to evanmarquettes.com, put in your name and address when you take the quiz and I'll take care of you. We're going to talk about how you could enroll in love. You to find a relationship that makes you safe, heard and understood. Uh, we'll get to that at the end. In the meantime, uh, what I want to share with you is a, a story about the value of conflict. And so Let's note the many contradictions and the things we talk about on the Love You podcast. I'm fully aware of them. Uh, anytime someone wants to point out my hypocrisy, it's not hypocrisy if you could hold two uh, contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. That's life. There are multiple realities. There are multiple truths. There are multiple points of view and opinions. And that never is more apparent than when you're in a relationship with someone and you have to merge lives and you have to find points of agreement on hundreds of things. Uh, you don't just get to march off by your merry self independently. The very nature of love involves a measure of understanding and empathy and humility and compromise, which isn't easy. And so that is what I want to talk about today. There's a thing that we say in Love You. I believe it. Uh, I'm not walking it back. And that's good relationships are easy. Right? If your relationship takes a lot of work, it's probably not a very good relationship. And if you look back on your history, you'll find plenty of evidence to support what I just said. Every relationship that you've ever had that's taken a lot of work ultimately was draining and not worth the time, emotions, and investment you put into it. So my paradigm is that relationships are fundamentally easy. They take effort, but that effort shouldn't feel like work. That said, if two independent, free-thinking, presumably intelligent people come together, it would be impossible for them to agree on everything. So it's how you handle this conflict that determines whether your relationship takes effort or if that effort actually turns into work. There are plenty of people who have relationships where because they don't have great communication skills, they haven't had healthy marriage modeled to them, lapse back into the worst possible communication habits, right? John Gottman talks about them in his work, you know, the idea of stonewalling, right? Avoiding conversations, uh, pulling away, reacting in anger, changing the argument. You told me to do this. Well, I'm going to bring up this thing that you did three years ago. There's lots of ways that people are very emotional and unfair fighters. And so what we're doing is 
operating from a place of good faith. I'm presuming that you listening to this are a reasonable person. I'm presuming that the person you're dating is also a reasonable person. If when I say that you say, no, my boyfriend's not a reasonable person. Why are you dating him? I'll just put that right out there. If you're not dating a reasonable person, someone you can't disagree with or argue with, if you have to shut yourself down, if you have to bend over backwards, if you have to swallow your pride and put up with whatever he has to say, you really shouldn't be in that relationship. Uh, maybe on a future podcast, I'll tell you a story, a harrowing story that I happen to have heard just this morning about a very cruel relationship with someone that I know relatively well, so the names will be left out. But if you're in a relationship with a guy who's fundamentally unreasonable, the answer isn't, how can I be more reasonable and get him to reach me? The question is why you stay in that relationship. That's just a tangent. But when two adults have different life experiences, opinions, points of view, there's going to be points of contention. Hopefully that's 5% of the relationship, not 95% of the relationship where you agree. The story I'm telling you is about the 5% in my marriage. And I caution to say anything that's ever extreme. So people who fight all the time is a default setting where like 20% of their marriage is getting along and 80% is fighting. And I've talked to people like that. It's not a relationship worth preserving. On the contrary, there's people who are married forever and they don't have any conflict. And they don't have any conflict because they don't tell the truth and they don't stand up for their feelings and they don't communicate effectively. They just sort of die inside and smile and nod and try not to make waves or try not to bring up any sources of contention. I've talked to Love You clients who never fought in their marriage but had a miserable marriage. I've talked to people who grew up in houses like that. I had an ex-girlfriend once upon a time who found dating me intolerable. I know, could you imagine? but found dating me intolerable because her parents never had moments of disagreement. Everything was so peaceful that I guess if they were happy, that was fine, but it, that doesn't seem real for two people to never disagree. So the, so the question is not, uh, are we disagreeing too much or do we never disagree? Given that we're both human beings with opinions that are not going to completely overlap, how are we going to disagree? So here is the story, not a great story, just a typical story about the kind of thing that happens even in a happy marriage. This is my wife and I. We were throwing a dinner party. Um, it was my idea. She embraced it. So it's not like I you know, put a gun to her head and said, hey, let's throw a dinner party. My wife is an entertainer. She uh, That's a big portion of her identity. So she wanted to throw not just a dinner party, but the dinner party, the one for the ages. And that's who she is. She, she'll always do 150% when she can get away with 80%. And I knew that going in. Where the problem arose is that when my wife throws a party and she goes at 150%, it all rests on her. I'm not a lazy guy. I work with women for a living. I, I'm pretty good at understanding what women want. I'm not flawless, of course, no one's flawless, but I really do whatever I can to make my wife's, better, my wife's life better and easier. The problem is when you have all the knowledge in your head, you can't delegate it and no one else who does it can do it the way you can. And so then you're just left doing everything yourself. And that's unfortunately the way my wife throws parties is she was in the corporate you know, event planning business for years. She's very, very meticulous in particular about how she does this. There's nothing I could really do to help. So I could sit there and ask, honey, is there anything I could do for you? Right? 
no, 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 I, I, I got this. And she doesn't, she's not even resentful about it, right? That's not just the line. She takes on as the burden, hey, if I'm going to throw a dinner party, it's going to take me three days to do that, right? That's her thing. And then closer and closer it gets to the party. You know, she's going to need some manual labor, but she may not delegate that either. <laughs> and so like, I know I'm going to be the one who's picking up the ice right before the end of the party. Right. Occasional should be like, you know, can you cut the tops off of these strawberries? Can you carry the chips out? But it's basically like low level monkey work, you know, stuff that you can give to you can give to the kids. And so this is our dynamic. My wife is running around like a headless chicken. I'm sitting on the couch reading my phone, feeling terribly guilty. Honey, could I do anything for you? Honey, could I do anything for you? No. Brings us to present day. She doesn't ask for much help with the party. And she's already built up a whole bunch of resentment around that, which is, again, one of the great ironies is, can I help you? Can I help you? Can I help you? No, I resent you for not helping me. So that that's that's baked into the cake. All right. But on this party, which required a lot of effort, she had to do enough jobs, you know, put this food in the oven and put this out on the serving tray. And, oh, my God, this is the thing you can't do until the last minute. You can't boil the rice until whatever. And so she spent probably a good part of, uh, you know, the first part of the party, maybe 60 to 90 minutes, not really enjoying the party. I was entertaining the guests and getting everybody drinks and she's slaving away in the kitchen and is resentful. And I can understand why she feels resentful. The only solution for why, how we would have avoided that would be for her to have delegated more stuff to me prior to the party. So she wouldn't spend 90 minutes in the kitchen at the beginning of the party. It's easy to see this in retrospect, but it's hard to let go of control. Her version of events, and again, this is this is where two reasonable people can disagree, was that I should have known after 15 years of marriage that she needed more help in the kitchen prior to the event. I was in my office probably doing work on Saturday afternoon. The kids were off on their iPads doing their own thing. And so she's doing stuff in the kitchen. I'm doing stuff in my office. My assumption is if she wants my help, she's going to say, hey, Evan, could you come into the kitchen and help me? And if she said, Evan, could you come into the kitchen to help me? I would have said, yes, dear. I wouldn't have put my work or whatever the hell I was doing over that. It wasn't important stuff. It was just the way I was keeping busy while she was throwing the party, which is what I usually do until she says, Evan, I need you to do something. So we're at this impasse in her version. Evan, you know how crazy I get the day I throw a party. You should have known. You should have come out of your office and you should have volunteered to help me. Even if I didn't have anything for you to do, you should have done it. And my version is, honey, you know I'll do anything for you. All you have to do is ask and I'll drop whatever I'm doing. And so she carried around all of this anger for a good portion of the night. And so we had to have this conversation, the one that I'm having with you right now. As I said, it's not a story with a punchline. This is just a story where two loving people who know each other well, care about each other deeply, were looking at the exact same situation through a slightly different lens. And it caused a measure of resentment and conflict, even though she had a point that I know she gets crazy on the day of a party and I should have been there to help her, just sort of standing in the kitchen waiting to be told what to do. Whereas my point of view is if you needed my help, you could ask me and she never asked me. And then because she didn't ask me, she got, got resentful. So 
even in telling this story, I find it amusing and frustrating the way a lot of things in marriage are amusing and frustrating. And this conflict is the kind of thing that when you get it out and you share it without flying off the handle, without yelling, without offering character assassinations, you're so stubborn, you're so selfish. We didn't do any of that. We just had this exasperating conversation, which I now share with you. Week afterwards, we have another party because we're the Katzes. That's what we do. We entertain people. We we have the big birthday party. We have the big dinner party. We invite people over out of town to stay for a weekend. We always go really big. And so it's another occasion. Right? And this time, my mom is there and uh, my wife's brothers and their girlfriends are there. And it's 1230 in the morning and we're out sitting by the fire pit and just drinking and this is our favorite part of the party. Kids have gone to sleep and we're winding down and we're getting a little loose and telling, you know, profane stories. And it's an it's just a great part of the party is essentially the after party. But because of the conversation that we had the week before, what did I decide to do? I decided to leave my favorite part of the party, the after party where everybody's drinking and getting loose to go back into the kitchen to do all the cleanup for the party that I didn't prepare for so she would not feel compelled to have to do it at three in the morning after everybody left. I did all the cleanup. I'm not a hero. I'm not a martyr. I know, I know, I know. But I did the cleanup for the party that she went over the top to throw because I didn't do any of the prep work. Um, this is what we do for dinner normally. She cooks and I clean. That's not a big deal. Party is a much, much bigger deal. So I pulled myself out of the party to be able to allow her to talk to her brothers and their girlfriends, which is an opportunity she's not afforded very often. As you can imagine, that went over very well. And my wife, who's not a words of affirmation person, she's an acts of service person, she must have thanked me three or four times the following day for cleaning up and allowing her to spend more time with brothers. And that is the point, is in a good relationship, you're not keeping score. You're asking yourself, how can I make my partner happy? At what cost does it come to me? Usually the cost is very, very minimal. It's not sacrifice, right? It's not a huge compromise. No one's a loser in this exchange. In a good relationship, we routinely, voluntarily do things like that to make our partner's life better. Once again, if you have a partner who doesn't see the world in that light, maybe they don't articulate it the way we just articulated here. But if you are not with a man who understands that his job is to make your life better, who voluntarily does the little things to make your life better, you can find a better man, no matter how much you love him, no matter how attracted you are, no matter how much money, right? It is these little things that determine your happiness in a relationship, which is why going online and swiping right on the tallest, cutest, richest guy does not necessarily result in a happy marriage. The happy marriage is where you're dating someone who's fundamentally a giver, and now you could both give freely to each other. And sometimes it takes conflict to get to the other side of it to figure out how to be the kind of giver your partner wants you to be. My name is Evan Marcatz. Thanks for tuning into the Love You podcast. For more episodes like this on YouTube, click the subscribe button, ring the bell, and choose all to get notified when new content comes out. If you're on Apple or Spotify, 
please leave a written review, which helps to amplify this podcast to other high-achieving women who are ready for love. And if you want a man who makes you feel safe, heard, and understood, go to www.evanmarkatz.com forward slash apply and watch my free video about how you could fix your broken man picker. When you're done, apply to Love You to join other women in a coaching community where you'll gain confidence, raise your standards for what you expect from men, and get the relationship you deserve. I'll see you there.